Moncrief on News Talk. Good afternoon, how are you? Uh, so you were in an emergency room and this man was choking on a hobnob. And uh, how did that get... Now, obviously you treated him first, but how did that get you thinking afterwards? Well, yes, all good stories start with a hobnob, I think. And it was, we were in the intensive care unit. There was a patient who was very unwell with a cardiac arrest. And whilst we were caring for him, in fact, a flock of birds flew past the window on the intensive care unit where we were caring for him. And it kind of got me thinking that that morning I'd cycled to work and I had some flies on my face before I'd showered that morning. But why don't birds inhale things and end up critically unwell, just like this patient was. Now, they wouldn't inhale biscuits, but things like flies and the things they fly through. Mm. And that really sent me on a spiral of trying to work out how some animals survive in crazy extreme environments and how that can help human medicine. Did you find an answer to the bird question? Thankfully, I did find an answer. I was revising for my intensive care exams at the time, but rather than do that that evening, I spent quite a lot of time reading about bird's anatomy, how a bird's lung works. And in fact, unlike human lungs that have a pipe that go in and out, if you like, to the lung, bird's lungs go round and round. They have multiple outpouchings rather than just a single lung. So even if things do go in the wrong way, they don't tend to block and cause problems like they do in humans. Mm. Now, uh, one of the fascinating areas you cover in the book is about uh, potentially what we could learn from marsupials when it comes to IVF. Uh, Run us through that. Yeah, well, I'm talking to you from Australia at the minute, and it's uh, it's the law here, of course, to talk about kangaroos or koalas whenever you're on a radio <laughs> interview. Um, but kangaroos and other marsupials lay at this really key interchange between egg laying and live um, live birthing animals. And it was thanks to understanding the ways that marsupials have live pregnancies that really led to the birth of you know the first IVF baby, Louise Brown. Many people think it was actually the fertilization step, which is difficult. But in fact, fertilization had happened decades before the first IVF baby. And it's actually the implantation and the survival of that embryo, if you like, which is the key important thing. And that information came from marsupial pregnancy. Mm. Scientists worked out that they needed to, rather than dampen down inflammation, which is what they were doing before, that inflammation was actually important and a key driver of what we call implantation. Okay, so so there has to be inflammation or is it more the case of a certain amount of inflammation? Yeah, so previously to understanding marsupial pregnancies, uh, scientists would actively try to dampen down inflammation with drugs like aspirin and ibuprofen. And this finding really showed them why drugs like that, you know, cause the opposite and actually prevent embryos from implantation in that process. So it was really understanding that, which hence led to successful IVF treatments. Mm, And also there's a very interesting section on ants and how ants avoid infections. Yeah, well, I hope, you know, this book, One Medicine, explores the huge, amazing animals like the giraffe and the whale, but it also thinks about those animals that are all around us all the time, you know, underneath our feet without us noticing. And ants actually, remarkably, could perhaps treat the pandemic better than humans did in many ways. 
They produce antibodies, they wash their hands, they isolate the vulnerable and the young, they kind of socially distance when there are outbreaks in the colonies. They even use a form of primitive vaccination. And so perhaps if if governments had listened to the ways that ants have survived in colonies for millions of years, then the management of the pandemic may have been different. Yeah, because they seem to understand the value of ultraviolet light and they even uh, use a resin that's kind of a disinfectant resin. Spot on. So they can spray each other with a, a kind of an acid compound, a little bit like hand gel, if you like. And you're right. After a long winter, they often come to the surface. They go out on purpose into high levels of UV radiation. And we now use that technique in sterilization of surgical instruments and cleaning of hands and so on. And perhaps if we'd thought about the creatures underneath our feet all along, we would have come to those solutions much earlier than we did. I did interview a researcher a few weeks ago and they had done this uh, a study of uh, bonobo apes and how they like to spin around and it kind of has the effect of giving them a buzz from doing it was the conclusion they came to. Uh, but obviously not, they're not the only creatures that do that. You do write about dolphins and what, like do they inhale puffer fish or how exactly does that work for them? Yeah, this was a pretty amazing finding where uh, oceanographers and uh, cameramen actually discovered that dolphins, probably on purpose, although it's hard to know this for definite, expose themselves to small amounts of pufferfish toxin, which is highly deadly and can kill dolphins and humans, but actually just enough to perhaps give them a feeling of being high. And this is especially in juveniles around a certain time. Uh, it's been observed by multiple people now. And although it's hard to insinuate what that actually means, the behavior certainly looks like that kind of drug-seeking behavior. And there's even other hypotheses. There's one called the drunken monkey hypothesis that explains why apes and primates preferentially will go for slightly rotten berries and fruits. And in fact, that's because they ferment, they ferment. And as they ferment, the calorie content is higher. So you get more from it. But as a result, you know, there are alcohols in fermented fruits and fermented berries. And so perhaps that's one small explanation for why humans seem so attracted to alcohol, for example. Though it is intriguing as to how the dolphins know exactly the right, uh, the right amount to take. Yeah, and you know, perhaps there are times where they don't, and perhaps there are times which which are uh, you know which are bad as as there are in humans. And you know, the book One Medicine also hopefully explores that mental health side of things in in humans, not just the physical medicine side. It explores uh, work around self harm and suicide, as well as loss and mm. the importance of touch and the importance of grief in animals and how that can be applied to humans. Does human medicine and animal medicine intersect that much in, in the way you've done in this book? But in general, in the sciences, does it do this? Yeah, well, I hope the book is a lighthearted look on this subject. It's, you know, it's got some humor in, it talks about travel, it talks about the amazing science. But there is a serious side and a serious message. And I think human and non-human 
doctors, vets, if you like, working closer together is absolutely something that we need to do and think about. You know, why don't doctors train with vets? Certainly for the early part of their training, there could be so much shared learning and experience from that. Why are the departments of medicine and the departments of veterinary science so separate? And surely coming together would be mutually beneficial. And even to the extent that why is it human doctors swear an oath to just one species on the planet, humans, and vets swear an oath to every other species on the planet. Uh, so I think one medicine, uh, as the book is is called, really is, is a kind of serious message behind that, I think. The name of the book is One Medicine. Matthew Morgan, thank you very much. Thank you. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.